Hello, everyone. Welcome to Women in the Word. Let me just say it is absolutely great to be in the room with you, to be streaming live with you. Um, my name is Amy Foster, and it's just the joy of my heart to study the Bible with women. So I'm super happy to do this with you today. It's a great time of year. Also, I don't know about you, but fall always feels a little frenzied and busy to me. A few weeks ago, I was driving home late from work one evening trying to figure out dinner for my family, and I picked up my phone, and on speed dial, I called my neighborhood pizza place, uh, the, the place I've called for 20 years. And I tried to order the same pizza I've ordered for 20 years, but in my busy, distracted mind, I forgot the name of our pizza. And I just said, I want the large supreme. And the girl answered me on the phone, and I thought, she, she maybe sounds a little terse. We don't have a supreme. Well, I didn't recognize I was using the wrong name, so I sort of repeated myself, oh, you know, I want the large supreme. And she answered me again, and this time she definitely was terse. We don't have a supreme. So I recognized I was using the wrong word, but I couldn't come up with the right word. And I said, you know, the pizza with everything on it. And again, she said, we don't have a supreme. <laughs> so we were in danger of being two terse women on the phone in this moment. And I just thought quickly, and I said, okay, do you have a menu? Can you look at your menu and tell me what the most expensive pizza is? <laughs> and she said, oh, you want the special. <laughs> and I laughed, and I thought, really? You didn't know what I meant, supreme? I mean, don't we all know what supreme means? All, all the marketers use supreme. We've got supreme golf. There's a supreme donuts in my neighborhood. And we all know the national pizza chain that calls their fully loaded pizza what? Supreme. Yeah, supreme means the greatest, the best. It means superior to all others. And supreme is the word that we can put on the book of Hebrews. The message of the book of Hebrews, the message of Hebrews chapter 2, is Jesus is supreme. He is superior to all others. He's greater to all others. His greatness is on display. In chapter 2, we're going to get a lot of big themes introduced that are going to be carried out throughout the whole book. They will be expounded on in greater detail later, but they're introduced here. And chapter 2 is a direct continuation from chapter 1. That's why it begins with the words, therefore. So let's think back to last week as Deb was teaching us. Therefore is referring to everything we learn about Jesus in chapter 1. It's all those mind-blowing realities. The eternal Son of God, the creator of everything, the powerful sustainer of everything, the imprint of God, the radiance of God's glory, the one who's seated in the place of power, wearing a crown who'll reign forever. That big view of God is where we start, and that big view of God, of Jesus, comes with a warning. This is the first warning in the book of Hebrews, but the whole book is really going to read kind of like a volley that goes back and forth between a warning and then followed with an encouragement, a warning and encouragement. It begins with the very first warning, so open your Bibles and read with me Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will." Okay, so he begins with this warning, and it's pretty urgent. He actually rephrases this warning three different ways. So he says three times, pay attention, don't drift, and don't neglect this warning. And so we hear the urgency in his message here, and we have to remember, even though we don't know who wrote this book, he knows his audience. He's writing to people that he knows well, and he actually includes himself in the warning here when he says, we We must remember, so he knows his audience, and he knows they are believers in Jesus, but for some reason at this time, they are hard-pressed. They are struggling with the temptation, perhaps to return to Judaism, to return to legalism, to rituals, to laws, and that's somehow a drifting away from the message of Jesus. So, So he puts these evocative words in his warning, don't drift away. And it's so easy for us to just visualize drifting. You know, what does that mean? I picture a wimpy little boat just kind of floating and being led off the path by a current, an invisible current. Or maybe you picture a boat being pulled outside of the safe harbor. Drift helps us understand kind of a a spiritual danger for all of us. Drift suggests a subtle, gradual, unintended movement. And it's kind of passive. It's a movement that's being directed by something else. And so the warning here is, hey, pay attention and don't drift. Now, we always need to stop and and point out the danger here is not of losing salvation. These are believers, and we believe that you don't lose your salvation. So it's a different danger here. It's a danger of drifting away from the supremacy of Jesus and his message of salvation. And so I think what that means is it's a danger of failing to live the abundant life right now that Jesus died to give you, and it's also a danger of somehow losing out in some of the eternal reward that is awaiting us in the future. There's a future, a forward-looking theme throughout this entire book. We're going to see ongoing references to the great inheritance awaiting us, those who endure and persevere in faithfulness. So don't drift, and what follows is the argument why we should pay great attention. And he begins with, you need to pay great attention because this message is supreme. It's the best message. And he uses what is familiar to a formerly Jewish audience here. He compares the message of Jesus to the Old Testament law, which was God's earlier message to his people. And that message we know was given to Moses through angels and was communicated to the people. And they know that message was true because God said, when you disobey me, there will be a punishment. And that's exactly what happened to them in the Old Testament. So they accepted and built their lives around that Old Testament message. And now the writer is saying, this message is better It's supreme. It's above the other one. It's better because it wasn't expressed through angels. It was expressed in person from the mouth of Jesus, the Son of God. And it was preached as supreme by every single eyewitness. All of the apostles preached the same message. 
Jesus Christ, Son of God, came in the flesh, crucified, buried, resurrected. That's the message all through the Gospels, all agreement on that message. And then this message, it was authenticated by God himself. All the miracles you see in the book of Acts, that's God's seal of authentication. This is my message. You need to listen to it, including the giving of the Holy Spirit and all the gifts that came into the New Testament church. So the message here is the Old Testament message has been replaced by a supreme message, so don't drift from this message. And then the writer moves on to his next point, and everything else he's going to say could really fall under the category of the supremacy of Jesus. All these different ways, Jesus is supreme to anything you've ever known or encountered before, beginning with the destiny and the glory of Jesus. And we're going to read about Jesus' destiny here, but before we do, we have to point out whenever we're talking about Jesus' glory, there is this aspect that's been described as already and not yet. Already happened, not yet fully realized. And so we're going to talk about some of these things are already and some of these things are not yet. So begin reading with me about the supreme destiny of Jesus beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, he begins with Jesus' destiny, but he begins with the not yet part, the world to come, the world that isn't actually before us right now, is a world where everything is subject to Jesus. He's the king, everyone is bowing before him. And we're reminded that angels won't have that destiny, only Jesus will have that destiny. And then the writer starts backing up and he explains why Jesus has that glory and that future ahead of him. He quotes Psalm 8 here, and this is a psalm that was written by David, and it's really describing the awe and wonder that David feels that God condescends to interact with mankind. God condescends to give mankind some rule over this creation. You need to know there's, there's a, a little disagreement on how to theologically interpret this psalm here in this place. Great minds are on both sides of this. Some theologians believe the writer is quoting David here, what is man still referring to mankind and mankind's future co-reigning with Christ. Others believe, no, we think in the context of Hebrews, he's, he's not talking about mankind, he's talking about the Messiah. It's just my opinion, I'm inclined to believe that line of thinking that we're talking about the Messiah here, which would mean when we say, what is the son of man that you care for him? We know that's the term Jesus used to describe himself 
often. And so if we're, if we're reading this in the context of we're talking about the Messiah, this reference to made lower than the angels, that lets us know Jesus is um, taking on flesh and bone. Jesus is taking on a human frailty that comes with that, and it's a frailty that angels never had to experience. You see, angels don't suffer broken bones, angels don't bleed, and most importantly, angels don't die. And when Jesus comes in human flesh, he makes himself vulnerable to all of those things. He never relinquishes his deity, but he's taken on a frailty that the angels don't have to experience, even though he's the one who created those angels. It's a voluntary humiliation, and we stop and we think, why would Jesus do that? Why would he make himself more frail than his own creation? We're told it was the plan of God that Jesus would taste or experience death for everyone. And so we know the whole story of God here, and, and we can put that into context. We know that Romans 6.23 tells us that every sin deserves death. The wages for sin is death. And so Jesus takes on a physical body in order to pay the death penalty for all of us. That's why he does that. We deserved death but Jesus substituted himself in a body in our place, and he atoned for our sin, meaning he made the payment for our sin. That's what's happening here. It really helps us understand Colossians 1.22 when it says, you have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So Jesus, his lowering of himself and making himself frail in this way was only for a little while because we know how the Easter story played out. Jesus' sacrifice of himself satisfied the just standard of a holy God, and that's why Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was resurrected, and his resurrection shows that he's triumphant over sin and death, and that's why right now, already, He is crowned and seated at the right hand of God. He's in the place of power. So on the already side, he's already victorious. He's already crowned. He's already seated with God. Those are present realities. But on the not yet side, the whole world is not yet bowing to Jesus. The whole world isn't yet subject to him. Because we know God has given Satan some freedom and some time to work out his own plans here on the earth. So for the recipients of this letter and for us today, we still live in that time. We live in this time when the world is under a fallen state, under the rule of Satan. Because it's not yet time for Jesus to put all things under subjection to him. The human eye doesn't see any of this, does it? We don't see Jesus sitting on a throne already, and we don't see the not yet part. And almost buried in this message here is the encouragement, the exhortation. And the encouragement is we have to live by faith. It's the counter to the don't drift warning. So I want you to look back at verses eight and nine. We're gonna look at them carefully. I want you to pay attention to something. The word see, S-E-E, is gonna be used in each verse, in verse eight and in verse nine. That's our English translation. The Greek translation uses two totally different words there. They're two different verbs being expressed. I don't know Greek, 
Um, just that's my disclaimer, but I do read a lot of smart people who do, and I'm going to try and help you understand what they've helped me understand. So look at the second half of verse 8 here. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. We don't see it, and that's the word we know, see what our eyes do, our vision. We don't see it. We don't see Jesus reigning on a throne, floating up here in the sky at God's right hand. We don't see it. But then look at verse 9. This is a different word for see. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This Greek verb does not mean see with your eyes. It means deliberately, intentionally regarding something. You don't see it with your eyes, not yet, so you focus your mind on it. You focus your mind deliberately and intentionally on what your eyes don't see. Our eyes don't see Jesus wearing a crown, but we can focus our soul on that and we can focus our heart on that. We can focus on the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, lowered himself, died in our place, rose victorious. It's already happened. It's already happened even though our eyes don't see it. And we all know it takes faith to do that, doesn't it? takes faith to focus our mind on something we can't see. And we know that the theme of faith will run all through this book, and the great definition of faith comes from Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There it is again, the conviction of things not seen. So this is the antidote to drifting. It's to deliberately and intentionally regard Jesus as the victorious king. That means dwell on these things, consider these things. And for me, that means all my decisions, my choices, my actions need to be based on Jesus tasted death in my place. And that means he reigns as king right now in my heart. That's how we deliberately focus on those things. One day, his reign will be visible to everyone, but today, it is visible to me through faith. So we focus our mind on that, and then the writer moves on to describe Jesus as, depending on your translation, sometimes it will say the founder of salvation, the author of salvation, the captain or the originator of salvation. But in all those references, captain, founder, author, There's this idea that Jesus is the one who goes before us and makes the way. And there's this theme of of really significant union, community, connection, solidarity between Jesus and the people who are lining up behind him. It's solidarity between Jesus and the people he's saving. And he's really presented here like the idealized big brother, the heroic kind of a big brother that we all have sort of in our fantasy life, you know, the big burly brother who goes before us and makes everything safe for us, or the brother who does everything right, and he's the family's big, bright, shining example. I don't know if any of you had brothers. I had a big brother and a little brother. My big brother wasn't perfect, but sometimes he did step into this heroic role in my life. I was remembering this pretty vivid experience. I went on a high school trip, you know, in high school where you get on those big charter buses and drive for hours and hours. It was a four or five day trip. 
I don't know what I did, but at some point on that trip, I did something that really offended a girl. Um, And she was a girl with a great deal of influence. She responded with a lot of anger towards me. And then she started pulling other people into her anger. The last day of the trip, we all loaded up those buses. We were going to ride for six or seven hours. And she had taken all my things out of my seat and put them on the floor. And she was sitting in my seat, not going to let me sit there. And so I pick up my things rather pathetically and start walking through the bus. Wherever there was an empty seat, may I sit here? And every single person would look at her. And then they'd look at me and say, no, you can't sit here. I went all the way to the back of the bus and came all the way to the front. And one compassionate girl, I remember she was seated in that first seat right behind the driver. And she looked at me and she said, I'll share my seat with you. So two teenage girls squeezed into one little seat for six or seven hours. And I just held it together and played stoic. But by the time I got home, back with my family, I burst into tears. As any good teenage girl does, I laid on my bedroom floor and I cried for hours. I can remember my parents coming in and trying to console me to no avail. And finally, my big brother comes in. And he's got his acoustic guitar, and he's strumming a familiar tune, and he's playing. He used to sing this song to me all the time. It's an old kind of folksy song you might remember. Um, It's by a group called Pure Prairie League. It goes something like this. Amy, what you want to do? I think I can stay with you. Well, he's strumming away, but he's changed all the words. Amy, what are we going to do? I think I can take care of you. And he's changed all the words to the chorus. He's put the mean girl's name in there and described how terrible she is. And he's listing off all the things he's going to do to make her pay for hurting me. And I stopped crying. My brother did what my parents couldn't do. He gave me this hope that somebody could fight my battle for me. I felt so united to my brother in that moment. And as I'm reflecting on it right now, I feel so united to my brother right now because he was willing to fight my battles for me. The writer of Hebrews gives us this great picture here of Jesus going before us as the perfect big brother. He's fighting our battles, and he is setting the best example for us to follow. Read with me in verse 10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. Okay, we've got a new family tree emerging here. It's the plan of God. It begins with God. He has the plan, and it's the same plan God has always had. He's drawing together a group of worshiping people to love him forever. So God has got the plan. Now, Jesus, the perfect older brother, is the one who's going to execute the plan. And all of us who come into the plan, now we're little brothers and sisters of Jesus. We are united to Jesus and God like family. And I don't know about you, but I found some of this language a little bit tricky. It was a little hard for me when I read Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It made me stop for a minute and think, was Jesus ever imperfect? 
And we know that's not possible because he was the holy son of God. Again, this is something we lose in the translation from Greek to English. Perfect doesn't uh, mean the same thing. Perfect here means fully serving its purpose, fully acting in the way it was designed, fulfilling the plan for which it was intended. So if you can imagine a hammer, a big, great hammer, driving a nail through a hard surface, bam. In that action, the hammer is perfected. It is fully serving its purpose. So that is, that is how Jesus is perfected. He is, fully servicing, he is fully serving the purpose for which he was created. God's plan was to make us holy and bring us into his family, and the means by which that would happen was Jesus suffering on our behalf, becoming frail for us. That is the plan of God, and we are now described with some great language. We're described as sanctified, which means holy. We are described as holy. By paying our penalty, Jesus removes the penalty, and he puts his holiness on us. And I can see this sort of like it's the family DNA. Holiness is the DNA for God and for Jesus, and now he puts that family DNA on us. He put on skin like ours and became frail so that we could put on holiness like his and become sanctified. I have to stop when I look at this word sanctified and remind myself, I'm not just getting a ticket to heaven here. I'm not just getting a get out of jail free card. I'm gaining the dignified position of a sibling of Jesus, a daughter of the most high king, beloved child of God. And then the writer goes on and he adds some verses from Psalms and Isaiah showing Jesus is the one who leads us. He helps us know God. He sets the example for trusting God, all as provision for us as younger brothers and sisters. Then it will go on to describe Jesus still in this big brother role, fighting our battle, fighting our enemy for us. But the enemy is way worse than a mean girl in these verses. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, so he's destroying death and Satan, and he's destroying sin's power in our life. And to destroy means to render something powerless. It doesn't mean make it go away. It means he renders it powerless. So let's unpack that just a little bit. Jesus has already described Satan as the author of sin, the father of lies, the one who has no truth in him. And we know from Genesis 3 that Satan came in and he used lies to tempt the first people to sin. That's how Satan did it. And when sin entered the world, it became a part of all of our nature. And God, because of his holiness and his justice, he said there must be a penalty for sin. And the penalty for sin has always been death. Death means both physical death, that first came into the world in Genesis 3, but it also means spiritual death eternal separation from God. Under this system, death reigns for all of us. 
Death reigns and enslaves all of us. And we can never stop paying attention. That's the end goal of Satan. That's his big dream and that's his big plan to forever separate every single one of us from a God who loves us. That's how death reigned until the penalty of death was completely satisfied by the perfect sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice for us. So now all of us who line up behind Jesus Death has no power over us because death's penalty has been paid. That's why Romans 8.1 is so many believers' favorite verse. It says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Jesus has won that battle for us. He has defeated and rendered Satan and death powerless. He has also rendered sin's power powerless. Um, You know, Jesus, by coming in a human body, he showed us he was able to experience temptation, and he was able to uh, not fall to temptation. He was able to stay obedient to God in that. And now he tells us that he's willing to put his spirit in us. So the same way he's kind of covered us with that family DNA, he's also put his victorious spirit in us so that we can fight sin's power. One writer said it so well, we can't win a spiritual battle using man-made weapons. We can only win using the spirit of God. And so ladies, when we're tempted, we're fighting the spiritual forces of evil and we don't have to use our own weapons because our own weapons don't work very well. Jesus has offered us his spirit and Jesus has already won that war on our behalf. So we just have to rely on the spirit that Jesus gives us, and he has already defeated that enemy. And again, he does all of this to unite us to him, to make us his sisters. And then he goes on, and he continues to act in this amazing big brother way. He's the big brother that always watches over us. He's the big brother that always has our back. And the language used here is he's the high priest, the supreme high priest. Verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." This is the gospel for us right now, today. We have a savior who's already defeated our enemy and he is ever watching and ever available to us. He's described as the high priest. The Jewish audience would totally recognize this. In the Old Testament, it was the job of the priest to carry the innocent animal that was substituted in place for the sinful people and to put that innocent animal on the altar. Jesus has taken his own body, his own frail flesh, and offered that on the altar. It was also the priest's job to enter the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was, and to offer the blood that would atone for the sins of the world. And Jesus, as the high priest, has already offered his own blood. But here's where the high priestly role changes. In the Old Testament, the high priest would never sit down in the Holy of Holies. Jesus sits down because no other sacrifice needs to be made. Jesus sits down because the work is finished. 
He's made the necessary sacrifice. He's been both faithful to the just standard of God. Death is the penalty. And he's merciful to the need of sinners who can never save themselves. He's both faithful and he's merciful. And he continues in this merciful role today. He is merciful with us because he has experientially been in all of our struggles. When he put on skin and flesh, he, he made himself willing to experience our struggles. You know, James tells us that God is not able to be tempted. But when Jesus put on skin and walked on this earth, he made himself vulnerable to temptation. You know, the very beginning of his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he struggled with Satan there. Satan was tempting him. He was tempted to care for himself his way, not God's way. He was tempted to exalt himself his way, not God's way. You know, I believe that his last night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed in anguish, I believe he was tempted there, tempted to take his way, not God's way. I want us to pay attention. Every temptation we will ever face has the same core, my way, not God's way. Every temptation is that temptation, and Jesus has experienced it already. And Jesus, as our example to follow, he remained completely faithful and obedient to God. That's why Jesus can be so merciful with us today. He can look at our struggle with compassion and empathy because he experienced those same things. He is also just today. He serves as our advocate. That's a legal term. If we do sin, that means he is at the right hand of God advocating for us. He is there as a symbol. His body, his presence is a symbol. The penalty has been paid. The debt has been fulfilled. That is how Jesus serves today as our high priest. He always has our back. The people who received this letter, they were being called um, with an urgency to persevere and endure. And their temptation was to take their eyes off of the supremacy of Jesus, to take their eyes off the supreme salvation that's being offered. And I think that's the same temptation we all face today. So I think the warning that they get is a warning that is applicable for us today, isn't it? And it's don't drift. Don't drift from this great message, from this great salvation. So as I consider these verses, I want to remind myself, Jesus came and he died to make us holy. That's the great message. He did all the lowering of himself to remove the sin that separates us from God. He did all that lowering to give us a new relationship inside his family. And he did all that lowering to give us access to his victorious spirit. If we reduce our salvation to Jesus is my ticket to heaven, we don't participate in becoming holy. We don't participate in that ongoing sanctification process. So for me, I want to stay anchored to Jesus as he continues to conform me to the family likeness every day. That's one application for us. Don't drift from the message that Jesus has already won this battle. Isn't there freedom in that message? He's already defeated our enemy. As we encounter a sin struggle, we cannot believe it's too powerful for us. 
It isn't because Jesus has already overcome it and he's promised that his spirit is in you and you can rely on his spirit. You're not enslaved to sin's power. But we have to stay anchored to him and we have to fight sin with Jesus' spirit, not with our own. His is the only weapon that will work for that. We don't drift from the message that we have a merciful high priest available to us today sympathetic, compassionate towards our suffering. You know, the big lie we all believe when we're hurting is that no one understands. I'm all alone in this. And the truth is Jesus experienced every human sorrow and difficulty. If you consider his life, he was maligned and lied about. He was tormented and plotted against. He was ridiculed and doubted, at times even by his closest family members. He was unjustly accused, abandoned by his friends. One betrayed him. He was tortured. He was killed. And he experienced the devastating silence of God. He experienced it all. And now he understands. And when you suffer, he enters your suffering with mercy and compassion. We also don't drift from the message that Jesus is king. None of us can see that with our eyes here, but God promised one day we will see it. One day every person in the entire world will see Jesus as king. They will bend their knee and bow to him. They will claim he is Lord. If we don't hold on to that message, we live pretty hopeless lives today. And if we don't hold on to that message, we become pretty misguided. And we look to things like, politics and government and comfort to be our savior when Jesus alone has that rule. Worship Jesus now, let him be your king now, and then you hope in his eternal reign. None of those things are things we can see with our eyes today, but we can focus our mind deliberately and intentionally on Jesus and on his salvation for us. And I know that sounds kind of lofty and ethereal and not very practical. And at Christ Chapel, we're all about Monday morning relevance, Monday morning application. So I want us to get concrete and practical together. I want us to practice together focusing our mind on the supremacy of Jesus, okay? So we're gonna practice it here so that tomorrow when you're struggling, you know how to do this. We're just gonna focus our mind on what our eyes can't see. So you get yourself comfortable. Do whatever you need to do to focus your mind. You can close your eyes. You can use your visual imagination. You can just consider these words and these truths, but we're gonna practice together focusing on Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God who has always been the powerful one who created everything, who sustains everything by his word. Jesus, the one who is worshiped in heaven by all the angelic hosts. That powerful, eternal Jesus, in extravagant love, he left the splendor of heaven to put on human skin and frailty. Jesus allowed himself to be maligned and beaten and tortured and killed 
to serve as the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. And in great victory, Jesus rose from the grave and he is seated now next to God, wearing a crown and the angels are roaring in victory. Today, right now, Jesus is ever present, never sleeping, ever watching, always available to help you. When you suffer, he suffers with you. He puts his arm around you, and on his hands you see the scars of his own suffering. When you struggle, he comes beside you and strengthens you with his spirit. When you fail, he advocates for you. He extends forgiveness. He keeps you united to God forever. He won't let anything separate you from his family. Jesus won the battle And one day he will claim his victory. He will end Satan's reign forever. Every eye will see him wearing his crown. Every knee will bow to great King Jesus. Lord God, let this be the prayer of our heart, the purpose of our days, and the hope of our lives. Help us keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen.